Eating Smoke by Chris Thrall. The true story of one man's descent into drug psychosis in Hong Kong's triad heartland. Read by Nicholas Atkinson. Part 2. It was at this point, standing on the platform in Chimsa Choi for the third time in a week, unable to stop myself going to buy meth, I knew I was addicted. Of that, I was never in denial. I didn't bother with any phony resolutions either. I opened Mark's door to find two girls in place of Brad and Cliff, teenage blondes from private schools, smoking drugs with Garnet and Mark in this rat trap meant one thing, trouble. The second a snooping mum got wind of what her little angel was up to, shit would fly. And these Barbie dolls would grass up Mark quicker than beans. I stuck the ice down my sock and said goodbye. Preparing for lift-off back in my little outquarter, I revelled in the process. Rolling the toot. Smoothing the silver foil. Sprinkling a few tiny translucent chips onto it and smoking them up. The result? Utter euphoria was not one to see you sit back and take it easy. It combined with an immense surge of energy, making you feel razor-sharp and ready to tackle anything. In this hyperactive state, I craved stimulation, something to do. I discovered abilities I never knew I had, or was told I was a failure at at school. I'd while away the night hours teaching myself to draw Japanese manga characters or writing poetry and song lyrics. I showered... Suited up and left for the MTR, still with a good deal of buzz rushing around my body. At work, I'd swapped desks and pinched an old computer, screened off from the room by rows of filing cabinets. I spent the day chain-smoking, drinking coffee and playing pinball on my new machine. A few of us guilos decided on a night out. Old Ron suggesting the Big Apple in Wan Chai. We knew he liked the place as he often arrived at work absolutely minging, proudly announcing he'd been there all night. After walking a block to Luard Road, we found ourselves surrounded by multicoloured neon. Joe Bananas, Rick's Cafe, Club Neptune, Big Apple and thumping disco sound. Locals, expats, tourists, sailors, Nepalese, Indians and Filipinos flowed along the pavements, all moving with different gates and paces in varying states of inebriation. At the bottom of the steep staircase into the Big Apple... The large, smiling Chinese door attendant led our party inside for free. I had a chat with the Apple's sole bouncer, Colin, but he soon put me straight. I'm not a doorman, he said. I'm a slob. They just pay me to be a doorman. He told me his boss had not long left the forces, grabbing his attention and introducing me as a former Marine. I'm Ray, he said. Good to meet you, Chris. At six foot five, he was something of a giant. He had served with the Coldstream Guards, in the patch in Belfast my unit, 42 Commando, had in 1989. As Ray and I cracked on, it felt good to have a thicker-than-water bond with the manager of a popular Hong Kong club. By midnight, old Ron was flopping towards Pist. Knowing we had to work in the morning, we called the evening short, but he insisted on staying. I said my goodbyes and left for home. The next day at the Hong, as the Big Applers sat nursing their hangovers, old Ron arrived absolutely slaughtered, wearing one of those tacky Chinese skullcaps with fake plaited cue. The fangster stormed up and took a dive off the deep end. Standing by old Ron's desk, he screamed insults even I could work out. Bang on cue, 
Dennis Chang appeared to tell the dumbfounded Ron to take off his offensive headwear. Humiliated and embarrassed, he wrote a resignation letter, placed it on Fang's desk and said to Jenny, Tell Mr Fang thank you very much for having me here. I don't think Fang had ever seen a resignation letter. Either he sparked people or they simply buggered off. Life at the Hong took a downturn. The Guaylos dripped away. Neil Diamond had a simple exit strategy. He didn't bother getting out of bed for a week. He said, It's great not to have to come to the office. It's really boring. Back at Hing Tak, I realised I'd lost my wallet or had it stolen. I asked Vance how I could explain this to Fang. With a broad grin, he taught me how to say, Sir, sorry my Chinese not speaking well. Last night, one man picked my pocket. Is it possible I go to the police station? I learnt the phrase as best I could until Vance laughed. You are so smart. Sound just like Chinese. Fang looked up from behind his desk, attempting to appear nonchalant, yet as snake-like as ever. Hi, Abindawa. I replied, Hi, Wong Gok. Fang couldn't help but flash a look of surprise at Dennis Chang, then nodded and said, Hi. I felt chuffed. It was the longest exchange I'd conducted in Cantonese. Figuring I should check before going to the cop shop, I eventually found my wallet on a window ledge in the toilet. Panic over. I arrived at Gung Wang Hong the next morning. Leaning against my keyboard was an envelope with my name on it. My dismissal notice. Fang, the wily old dog, didn't want a Cantonese-speaking devil man in the office who might just try to steal his business. I was disillusioned with the business world. It was time to revert to what I knew best. Hello, Vance. I greeted him upon arrival back at Hing Tak. Hey, Quissa, how you doing, mate? He gave me a welcoming smile. So the job not go so well, ah? Not so good, mate. How's things with you? Well, the business not go so well either. But I must keep trying. I pulled out 7,000 of my severance. Sorry it's a bit late, you know. Ah, no problem. Later that evening, I was reaching for the tinfoil when I heard voices coming down the main stairs. Soyan! Someone kept shouting, the fortress-shaped walls adding a hollow echo as it reverberated around the courtyard. Hamsaplo! Fired off another, and so it continued, on and off throughout the evening. I had no idea what they were saying, but I knew it was to do with me, and it made me shudder. I flicked through my English-Cantonese dictionary. Soyan I couldn't work out, but Hamsaplo I could. It meant salty wet man. Do they mean sweaty, I wondered. Have I committed a no-no by bringing women back here? I needed to find someone who could explain all this to me, so I went to the Apple to see if my Chinese friends Max or Jackson were around. Old Ron came into the Apple. I was happy to have someone to talk all this craziness through with, someone who would lend a sympathetic ear. You're paranoid, mate, he said, with his irksome smirk. Sod off, Ron. You haven't been in the forces. You don't notice it. Notice what? It's like this. When we were in Northern Ireland, one of the lads noticed that the players we searched on the street, they all wore a certain type of clothing so they could recognise each other. It made sense because we did the same. Jeans, chucker boots and T-shirts. These triads all seem to wear jeans, white trainers and shell suit tops. You don't get it, Chris. Get what? I haven't spent time in the military and I don't bloody care what happens in it. Careful, Ron. I lost a few friends in there. Chris, 
I grew up in India. Both my parents were killed in a robbery when I was eight. Ron, I'm so sorry, mate. I had no idea. I felt ashamed. No one's got any idea. What's it like to grow up without parents? To go through a life of failure? To be a complete screw-up whose business collapsed so he came out here for a new start? Shit. Poor old Ron was a broken man. And too wrapped up in my own problems, I hadn't even seen it. Hoi chai, you not! shouted a voice down the stairs as I entered Hing Tak. Get stuffed! I reposted and went inside the apartment. Benny stuck his head round the door. Uh, is everything okay, Quissa? These people shouting, Benny. That's a bit of a problem. Shouting? He asked gently. Out there! I pointed to the back door, saying not very nice things about me. No, they don't talk about you. Vance was standing in the doorway. He looked me dead in the eye. They're shouting about me. Huh? What are you talking about, Vance? I didn't tell you, but since Quo on business fail, my other business not doing so well. I haven't been able to pay rent for three months. Not pay rent in Hong Kong is very bad. Mean like you are loser. I went to McDonald's and sat amongst the homeless people sprawled across the plastic seating. At 8am, I made my way back to Vance's. I had some mad hope that everything would have calmed down. That Vance would say, Hey mate, the business! And we could all go back to living the dream. The moment I entered the apartment, Vance confronted me. You cannot stay here. You must go from this place. Sitting on my backpack in Chimsa Choi's sunshine, I wasn't far from Chunking Mansions, the place I'd always thought of as a crap house. Now, I wished I had one of those tiny, curry-scented rooms to call my own. After days of sleep deprivation and excessive energy expenditure, you end up owing Mother Nature big time. I bought a ham and cheese pasty from a street vendor, retired to a rubble-strewn park around the back of Chungking, and lay down on a bench. I awoke to see a couple of girls laughing at me, but I was too tired to care. I gathered my belongings and found myself staring at three brass balls and a sign that read, Pawn Shop. Ten thousand dollar, said the elderly gent behind the grill, having looked at my Rolex for no more than a second. He knew his game, as well as another travel story tragedy. As my dad would say, It's only a rusting piece of metal, son. With more money in my pocket than at any other time during my stay in Hong Kong, it was time to go and invest some of it in two grams of crystal. Having secured the drugs, I had to do likewise with accommodation. In the post, I came across an advert for a place in Wan Chai, 4,000 a month plus deposit. After calling the landlord, I set out to have a look at it. I met Gabriel outside the apartment block. In his 50s and originally from Bombay, he was a short, portly gent with neat-cropped, pomaded black hair and small brown eyes that fritted around in constant state of suspicion. We were on Jaffa Road, about a quarter mile east of Clubland. This was a run-down part of Wan Chai, where decades of sun and typhoon saw buildings crumbling, where faded signs hung on rusting hinges above modest outlets. Proprietors of small businesses sat side by side, on the steps of their premises, shoveling in rice and putting the world, or at least this part of it, to rights. Elderly Chinese trotted past, pushing barrows toppling with rubbish bags, defunct television sets and sacks of foodstuff to supply restaurants. Overall, 
this ageing and unpretentious part of town buzzed with authentic activity. The building was a similar decaying beast to those adjoining it. We took a lift 20 floors to come out into a small hallway with peeling white paintwork, a beige tiled floor and decorative but rusting ironwork in place of glass in the windows. The corridor led to a door out onto the balcony, a huge storage recess full of junk and the entrance to the emergency stairway. Inside the apartment was a living area empty of furniture, with a worn wood parquet floor and room to swing half a cat, if you sucked your stomach in. The pink kitchen had a single ring cooker and space for two people at a squeeze. The bathroom, tiled in swimming pool blue, a toilet and steel wash basin. The bedroom, with a northerly view, Gabriel used as an office and storage for his henna export business. The room to the south would be mine, a small pale green affair with a stained concrete floor. I opened a window and looked way down to see the small courtyards lining the alleyway below, protected from the elements and the litter raining down by makeshift roofs. Every so often, you could glimpse the rain cover's colourful striping through a mountain of plastic bags, cans, bottles, cartons, condoms, tampons, nappies and other rubbish. I paid a deposit and he gave me a key. The next day, after roaming the streets job hunting, I made my way over to Wanchai to see Glenn, a likeable cockney who worked the door in a nightclub. As a guilo in clubland, I hoped he might know of any bars taking on staff. I climbed down the steep staircase into Club Nemo. At the bottom, there was a fair-sized stairwell with a lectern for taking the entrance fees and cigarette posters on the walls. Around the corner, you entered the club, which stretched off to the right towards a long U-shaped bar with low tables and comfortable chairs set around it. Above the bar was an ornamental surround with hanging drinks glasses and an air freshener and a huge television mounted to the side. Beyond this, to the far right, was a dance floor with booth seating in semi-darkness at the back. With the exception of the Filipino waitresses, the staff were all locals. Still early, there was only a handful of customers, all middle-aged Chinese men. I couldn't see Glenn, so I went up to the bar. A young Chinese chap, small and wearing round silver-rimmed spectacles, shook his head and pointed to the guy I'd just walked past. He was short and looked late forties. His hair showed not a speck of grey, and he dressed in a modest suit, white shirt and black tie. When I said hello, he just nodded, cold. He might not have come across as such a shifty character if it weren't for his eyes. One looked northeast, and the other one didn't. However, there was one thing immediately likeable about Paul Eng. It was his straightforward way of doing business. He simply said, Glenn, gone to Thailand. You want a job? You can do dormant job. Yeah, I want a job. Okay, start out here, 8 o'clock tomorrow night. It was a Thursday evening in Club Nemo. I put on my best shirt, but Paul Eng shook his head and led me into a storeroom, reached into a nest of sweatshirts hanging like ducks on a butcher's rail, and handed down two brand new white ones with Club Nemo printed on them in pink. 
Then Paul introduced me to the two other doormen. About the same age as me, Chi Chu was short and stocky. He had a surprisingly cherubic face and hair cut in a wavy bob. Dai Su, slightly older, was a giant of a man. With a face like a horse, he must have stood at least 18 hands and wore his mane in a curly bouffant style. Both wore shell suit tops, jeans and white trainers, together with gold bracelets and necklaces. They seemed amicable enough, and I looked forward to cracking on with them, as you do with your workmates. I got some background from a man drinking shorts at the bar. A middle-aged, middle-class, middle-management expat. He told me he worked on the airport construction project and took it upon himself to give me an impromptu rundown of the staff. You know they're all triads, he said. They belong to the 14K Society. The 14K runs one chai. You haven't met David yet, have you? Who's David? Nice chap. The owner, but he's not mafia. He has to pay these guys to run the place. Paul there. He's Dilo, big brother. You don't want to upset him. Not if you like your fingers and toes. See your man, Chi Chu, over there? Uh-huh. He's Ma Jai, a runner or errand boy. Bottom of the food chain. But don't be fooled. He's tough, and he'll pick up anything in a scrap if he can smash you over the head with it. Are there many scraps in Wan Chai? Sometimes they come into another's territory without permission. There was a showdown between Wo Hop To and Sun Yeon over on Lockhart a few years back, over the protection rights to a restaurant. Three hundred people clashed heads. Three hundred? Well, what about this guy Dai Su? He's Hong Sao, an assassin. Every so often he disappears for a few days, gets smuggled into China to do a hit on someone. Catalina, the waitress, she's not. Nor is Jason, the tall bloke behind the bar. Sydney and Michael, the other two, are what you might call up and coming. Marjais? Yeah, but they don't just let anyone in. Triads will work with anyone, even Guilos, if they can make a buck out of it. But it's only locals allowed into the true brotherhood. How do you know all this? If you're interested, you'll find out. It's all in the eyes, Chris. If you really want to know what's going on, watch the eyes. Paul Eng joined me at the front of the club. English wasn't his major, but he knew enough to ask where my apartment was. I added, for conversation's sake, it was currently empty of furniture. Without another word, he slid Dalek-like to where Jason stood at the till and came back with $4,000. Thanks very much, Paul, I said, reflecting on how in England I'd have had to leave a bodily organ as a deposit to merit this sort of favour in the workplace. Once again, I admired this straightforward Confucian ethic. If boss looked after worker, then worker would work hard and respect boss. From my stool at the front of the club, I watched as Paul and David's Thai acquaintances made their way to the bar. Without warning, one of them fell to the floor. I assumed she was just tipsy, but when I looked again, her face had turned grey. I jumped off the stool and ran over bent down and placed my open mouth above the unconscious girls and felt relief to sense a slight breath on my tongue. Checking her pulse on our neck, I discovered a faint beat. I timed the barely detectable palpitations to find... Shit! Her pulse was racing at 160. I looked up to see Paul. Without any emotion, he said, throw her down the alleyway. Everyone had put their drinks down 
and stood rooted to the spot, all staring trance-like, angry eyes fixed on me. The music thumped away, but the place felt silent. The atmosphere tight and ugly. I said, She needs an ambulance or she's going to die. An English guy crouched beside me. Do you want a hand, bud? He said. Yeah, mate, I whispered. Go over to the 7-Eleven and call an ambulance. He gave a discreet nod and disappeared. It wasn't long before the disco's beams bounced off the reflector stripes on the ambulance crew's jackets as they stretched her out. Everything went back to normal. Whatever normal was in this screwed-up fish tank. Back at the flat, chaos met me at the door. Water seeped over the threshold, flowing across the hall and into the lift shaft. The place itself was ankle-deep. Maybe the water supply had stopped and then come back on and I hadn't turned off the tap. Using a dustpan, I began scooping up the water and pouring it out of the window and down onto the litter-covered roofs of the courtyard below, mopping up with some old clothing from the junk room. I'd almost finished when someone knocked on the door. I answered it to find a girl, only about eight, standing on the doorstep. My father want to know, will there be any more water? Tell your father I'm very sorry, I said, embarrassed, and then went back to cleaning up the remaining puddles. The mattress was sopping wet. High up at the back of my room was a two-foot-by-three recess, and lying in it was a bedside sheet of plywood. Together with some lengths of bamboo in the junk area, it gave me an idea. I set about lashing the bamboo together to create a sturdy, five-foot-high framework to support the plywood. After a couple of hours' work, I had a bunk bed with space underneath to hang my clothes. Being Sunday, I had the night off work, and could relax for the day. Happy with my achievement, I went back and forth into Wanchai, buying bits and pieces for my place. The blue and yellow flowered mattress was a bargain in that shop on Lockhart Road. I threw it onto my homemade bed frame, and using the window ledge as a step, hopped up to join it. It was a spot-on fit, and comfortable too. My next task was to buy some tatami floor mats, but before doing so, I had to smoke some crystal. I didn't want to rush things. Sod it. As I went to open the door to the apartment, I realised I'd left my key inside. To help dry the place out, I'd left the windows open. It seemed an appropriate time to go and explore the roof. I tried the door onto the rooftop. It wouldn't open, so I climbed the back stairway instead. Halfway up, it angled right into total darkness. I edged upwards into the gloom. At the top, I could feel a steel door. As I eased it open, its rusting hinges screeched and the tiny pinpricks of light penetrating the frame morphed into a spectacular panorama over the rooftops and across the harbour to Kowloon. I stepped out of the exit's brickwork housing to see an equally impressive vista to the rear. Rising with awe-inspiring dignity above the tower blocks were rolling mountains clad in crushed green velvet. I'd come out onto the top level, raised to accommodate the stairway exit and the lift shaft's motors. Down to the right was the roof of my apartment, to the left the storage room and the emergency stairs. Someone lived up here, on the level to the west. This city had its own shantytown like any other, but in Hong Kong, it was high up in the air 
and fragmented across the tops of the buildings. When the summer typhoon smashed through the colony, its inhabitants paid a heavy price for living rent-free on these perilous perches. Now I saw why the door out onto the rooftop wouldn't open. Whoever resided up here had wedged it shut with a length of wood. From a metal ring bolted to the parapet, seventy meters above ground, a fifty-foot wire cable reached across to the building on the opposite side of Jaffa Road. Tagged at foot-long intervals with plastic ties was a clear nylon hosepipe, supplying water to the other rooftop. Through the frosted glass of a window directly across, I could see the silhouette of a large lady. She was brushing her hair in the mirror, but the hairbrush's outline gave the impression she was singing into a microphone. A noise caught my attention. I crept on my hands and knees to the side of the roof, peering over the lip. I could see the sky dweller had really made a home up here. There was a fair-sized shack constructed out of scrap wood, packing crates, and tarpaulin. Of most interest was not my neighbour himself, a man in his thirties with long, ragged hair, filthy bare feet, dirty blackened jeans, and a t-shirt with holes in it. But what he was doing? Crouched directly below me, he was burning pieces of folded-up paper in some sort of ritual. I went back to my own mission. I dropped the five feet down onto the roof of my apartment, and made my way to the three-foot-high stone-capped parapet to the rear. If my geography was correct, my window should be open a few feet below. Over the ledge lay an awesome sight. As the wind rustled around me, it gave the illusion the building swayed gently with it. I took one last glance down to see staff out the back of the business below. Appearing ant-like and surreal, then, grabbing the parapet, I vaulted over it, launching myself into the void. The soles of my boots scudding down the masonry as they brought me to a stop. From here, I transferred my toes across to one of the brackets, securing a rusting waste pipe to the wall. I wrapped my arms around the iron tube one at a time, and shinned the few feet to my open window. As with all the old buildings. There was a metal frame for hanging laundry out, bolted just below the casement. I stretched a foot over to it, gripped the open window, and pulled myself into the room. Making sure I had my key, I went to collect the straw matting from the junk room. Whilst there, I came across a large fake leather holdall. As with everything else, it stunk with the musky odor you'd expect from items of lost property. Hoarded for years in a dark, airless room, I slid the zip open to find a veritable library inside. One of the titles was Culture Shock Hong Kong. I picked up my furnishings, grabbed the book and a few newspapers for good measure. As I settled down on my new floor, a convulsion racked my body, followed by a deep yawn. Reminders that the drug's effect wore dangerously thin. I opened the book. And learnt that it was for people who want a deeper understanding of what makes Hong Kong tick. The next page that appeared to open of its own accord had the heading, "The Triads." Transfixed, I learnt that these anti-establishment brotherhoods had been a part of life in the lower strata of Chinese society for thousands of years. Lying back on the tatami, head propped on one arm, I flicked through one of the newspapers. Until an article caught my eye.
It was about a journalist in Shetkip May who had written one word too many about our triad friends, subsequently opening his office door one afternoon to greet a chopper blade slicing through the air towards him. It's really the drive on the top, you.